If you'll stand, we'll be reading. Um, we'll be reading Philippians one twenty-seven, through ch- um, chapter two, verse eighteen. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of prediction, perdition, sorry, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, Do not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. For all things... Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain nor or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you brought your word with you this morning and have it opened uh, to the book of Philippians, hopefully you've been uh, reading it uh, this past week and have enjoyed uh, the first uh, five weeks as we've gone through chapter 1 together now today, enter into chapter 2. I'd like to pray for us for our time in the Word, and that the Lord would reveal to us exactly what He would want us to know and take away this morning from His Word. And so if you would, join me. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that You are always a good God. Always. We can rest on that truth, and we can be assured of that each time. We open your word. You are faithful. You are just. 
You are altogether righteous. You're dependable and trustworthy. You always carry out your promises. Not a word of yours has failed. Father, I pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted here at Hope in Christ. And I pray that you would draw our attention just now upon the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We just celebrated this. We just remembered this as we uh, were partaking together of the bread and the cup of your great love toward us through your son, Jesus, our substitute, our rock, and sure defense, the one who deemed himself gentle and lowly in heart. I pray, Lord, that you as the God of patience and comfort would grant to us that we would be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus and that we may with one mind and one mouth glorify you, our Father in heaven. And Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray these things from your word. Amen. Well, we begin today working through chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. And this is message number 6 in our series titled Full-Time Joy. In week 1, we looked at God's good work in you. Those first eight verses and key verse there in verse 6, talking about God's work that he started in us, right? And that he's planning to complete at the day of Jesus. And that day of Jesus hasn't yet come, so he's still at work in us. Praise God, right? He's still at work. And for some of us, we would all agree, maybe all of us, we would agree, hopefully we would all agree that uh, there's a lot to still be done in us. Right? He's doing that work. Week two, we looked at this glorious crescendo and we looked at the prayer of Paul and how it ended. And it crescendoed to, right, the glory and the praise of God. So that was the key verse there, being filled with fruits of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. Then in week three, we looked at verses 12 through 18. And we talked about how the gospel, uh, when it is our motivator for living, how life changes, right? When when the gospel is our motivator, things change. Verse 18, Paul comes to the conclusion, what what then? What really matters to me? Only that in every way, Christ is preached. His name is preached, whether from false motives or from truth. His name gets put out there. In week four, we asked the question, do you get it? And we were looking at making sense of why we're here In the key verse there in verse 21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Right. And and he was hard pressed between the two. And we talked about what tipped the scales of his decision making. Right. It was ultimately, he says, it's more needful for you that I remain. And he knew that in his remaining, there was going to be much fruit in his labor. Last week, then finishing chapter one, we talked about what it is. What kind of living, this required living as a child of God. This is not an option. 
And one of the key verses there, really, we spent much time in is verse 27, talking about how our conduct ought to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our conduct as citizens of heaven, right? So that's really where we've been here in chapter 1. Over the next four Sundays, we're going to camp out in Philippians chapter 2. And today's message and next week's message really complement one another in a lot of ways, as I hope you'll see. Uh, They both address this subject of humility or lowliness of mind. He introduces the virtue today in the first four verses... And he's going to expound further on it next week when we look at the humility and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the big idea for today as we look at these first four verses, we're going to see how God's salvation exhorts us and encourages us onward to unity by way of or by means of humility. God's redeeming work exhorts us. It's it's really in the context of understanding that God redeemed us. You know, Chris will spend some time talking about this and just relishing in the joy of what Christ has done for us. And that's really the first part of the message. If we miss this part of the message, we miss one of our great motivators for unity in the church of Jesus Christ. So the question that I'd like for us to look at this morning from the text. If God has redeemed us, and church, he has. If he has rescued us, if he's redeemed us, then what's our response to be? I'd like to focus our attention on these first four verses. Notice the text begins... With a therefore. Well, it's always one of those buzzwords, right? When we come to the text, therefore. Well, it's a connector word, isn't it? A connector word. It's connecting something that's come previously with what's about to come. There's a thought. It's connecting a previous thought or thoughts with something that is about to come. And last week, as we looked at 27 through 30 of chapter 1, we saw what required living is for the child of God. We see that it's worthy conduct, that we're to share together, we're to stand together, we're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. It requires a winsome response. It's a call not to panic in this, right? Don't be fearful of your adversaries. And your response sends a message to those who are perishing. It also sends a message of confirmation to you that you are saved And the note there at the end of that verse is, and that from God. It's a reminder that you are saved, not of your own, but by his grace. We see that what's required of us at the end of that is wholehearted understanding. In that wonderful verse in verse 29, that that invitation, if you will, verse. We had those cards last week that really served as an RSV, a, a reminder. It has been graciously granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Therefore, okay, what comes next in chapter 2, verse 1, is a string of clauses, four of them. 
The verb is not supplied. So we have in, in the text, in many of your translations, you probably have uh, the words there is or something similar. The verb is probably in italics. Oftentimes when that's in italics in the scripture, it's, it's, it's being supplied so that you can understand the flow of the sentence. Okay? It, in other words, there is is not actually in the original language. The verb is not there, but it's being supplied so that we all understand the flow of this particular sentence. Therefore, if... And by the way, one other note here with these first four verses. This is one long sentence in the original language. Okay? This is one long sentence. And when you see that word, if, in the scripture... You might be inclined to think a conditional statement, and right you are. Uh, in other words, if we were to put forth a sentence, a conditional sentence, uh, if, it starts with an if, if Billy eats his spinach, he'll grow big and strong. All right? Now, based upon that sentence, whether you believe it or not, based upon the sentence... Billy's growing big and strong is predicated upon whether he will eat his spinach. No spinach, no strength. It's a conditional statement. If he eats his spinach, he'll grow strong. And we're led to believe that if he chooses not to eat the spinach, big and strong isn't going to happen for Billy. Thereby clear on that, right? It's a conditional statement. Now, in our English language, we tend to associate these conditional statements with the words if and then. If, then. If such and such happens or is true, then, right? That, that's it's typically the rendering. And sometimes the Bible presents conditional clauses, these if statements. And really, they're better rendered um, since or, or because... Uh, let, let me give you an example. And this example I want to give you from the Bible is actually the way that, it, that it's, it's most helpful to render this particular passage in Philippians 2. So that's why I'm pointing this particular passage out. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Okay? I'm going to give you an example of this, what I'm talking about, and how sometimes the Bible uses this if statement in a way that really is, is best rendered since or because. You remember the time when Jesus is, has been fasting? He's right on the back end of this, and afterward he's hungry. 40 days without eating. He would be hungry. He is hungry. When the tempter came to him, he said, verse 3, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you are the Son of God, tell me something, church. Does the devil know? Is he casting any doubt on whether or not Jesus is really the Son of God? No, he knows he's the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God, because you are the Son of God, act this way. Turn these stones to bread. Look at verse 6. Same kind of deal. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He's not casting doubt in the fact that, in fact, if you read the Gospels, you see this time and again, that the demons and the evil spirits, they clearly know who Jesus is. There's no question. They know who he is. And so we take that idea, we take that understanding, and we turn 
back to Philippians chapter 2. Having just had that as an example, chapter 2 verse 1 introduces a series of conditional clauses that are to be handled in really much the same way as the ones we just read in Matthew chapter 4. You know, one writer here I think is is very helpful uh, for us to understand the construction of chapter 2 verse 1 in Philippians by simply turning these if statements into questions. Four questions, right, based on the four clauses. Have you, remember he's addressing the church here at Philippi. Have you experienced any consolation, or another word we could put in there, encouragement? Have you experienced any encouragement in Christ? That's question one. Have you experienced any comfort of his love, church? Have you experienced any fellowship from the Holy Spirit? Has there been any affection or mercy afforded you in Christ? And really, if we were to keep the if statement in, let me read it. And be helpful with this understanding of the clause. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, in brackets, and there is. If any comfort of love, and there is. If any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and mercy, and there is. You see the rendering of these clauses? Do you see the, the importance of understanding how this is rendered in the text? I, I spend a little bit of time because I want you to get it. I want you to understand what the text is saying. Instead of exhorting the church right out of the gate in verse 1, what he does is he, he stockpiles the, this series of truths for them to digest. So in in bullet-like fashion, the truths come flying, compounding, building, leading to his main exhortation, which is in verse 2. That's the main exhortation, verse 2, okay? But what exactly is he doing in verse 1? What's he reminding them of? And why is this so significant as a precursor to his main idea in verse 2? Well, right out of the gate, here's what he's doing. He's he's calling to the church. Remember what happened. Remember what happened. I I love this. Uh, Kent Hughes writes about this. He says that right here, he he has taken the Philippians back to the graced memories of the supernatural work of Christ in their souls at salvation. Listen to what he says. He says, he's activated here their spiritual camcorders. Now, I know for some of you young folks, camcorder. What's a camcorder? You got a phone, right? But back in the day, there was a camcorder. Uh, back in the day, it was one of those big, big ones. You know, they put on your shoulder, big. Some of you remember the big ones. But, you know, the camcorders can be little small things, but you carry around and you're, you're catching video footage. It's this whole concept of remembering when. Camcorders take you back, don't they? They play back what once was. You see the children when they were little fellas. And you see them running around and you see them playing and you see them sleeping in their cribs. How many of you parents, come on, be honest with me this morning. How many of you parents have videotaped, not just like for five seconds, but like long periods of time, your children sleeping in the crib. Anybody ever done that? Nobody's ever done that. Okay, good. I, I, I can speak from experience. I know we've done it. And, and, you know, we're watching the video, and it's like, I mean, this is like, 
they're, they're sleeping. I mean, they're cute, but they're sleeping. But see, the camcorder replays all of these things. The camcorder even replays, remember those good old bathtub pictures? Remember that? Those bathtub pictures? And, and, and it replays the hairdos. And it replays the wardrobes. And you know what I'm talking about, some of the wardrobes, some of the old carpet. Right? It replays the things that you used to say. Things you used to do. The camcorder takes you back in time. Now, in the text, these four if statements in verse 1, they really, in many ways, are appeals. They're, they're appeals. Appeals to the church. They serve as a call to remember. A call to look at all of the blessings that have been granted to you in Christ Jesus. The spiritual camcorder is being activated. It's as though he's saying, remember the encouragement that you had in Christ back then? Remember the comfort of his love towards you back then? Remember the fellowship that you had with the Holy Spirit? Remember the times when you sensed him being that helper that he is, that comforter that he is, that great teacher that he is? Remember the affection and the mercy that was shown your way, the kindnesses of the Lord? He's saying here in verse 1, look closely. Take inventory. Remember what it was like to be redeemed. To be bought. To be purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Consider what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. He's saying count your blessings for just a moment as you recall God's goodness in your life, rescuing you from darkness and bringing you into the marvelous light of the Son of His love. And you know, I believe there are some of you here today who just need to push pause right here in the text. There's a whole lot of things going on in your life. Children are growing up. Jobs may be stressful. Marriage perhaps isn't what it could be. You've got some relationships that need mending. Play the spiritual camcorder and allow these truths in verse 1 to wash over you. Rejoice in His work in you. The Bible says, remember, that He has started a good work in you. Chapter 1, verse 6. As you play the spiritual camcorder and let it run, do you see the goodness of God reflected in your life? Are are you able to recognize the encouragement that you've received from Christ? Do you remember the magnitude of His love when He reached down to rescue you? Any recall at all on being a new creation in Christ? On being filled with the Holy Spirit? As that spiritual camcorder plays, are there evidences of his work flowing through you? Any moments caught on video where you experienced the affection and mercy that comes by way of Jesus Christ? God's redeeming work in our life exhorts us to unity. Or we could say it this way, his redeeming work in us 
through the completed work of Jesus, opens the door for unity in the community. Unity in the community. When I talk about the community, I'm talking about the body, the, 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 the church of Christ, the community of believers. So if these things in verse 1 are true, and they are, then what? If describes the condition, then gets to an outcome, a result, or an action that's to be taken. Replaying the spiritual camcorder brings us back to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior. It captures Jesus as our first love. Remember that. And reminds us of the rich blessings of being in Christ Jesus. The old man gone. The new has come. The smile back then as I replayed the spiritual camcorder. The smile on my face back then. It gleamed. It bore evident witness to the radical change that God had performed in my heart. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll. Since Jesus came into my heart. These are wonderful things to just ponder and take in and absorb. Not only for us individually, but for us collectively as a church. Because this is leading somewhere. Paul points the church to review the spiritual camcorder. To observe the truths of God, His Son, His Holy Spirit. To marvel at the blessings of His work in them. The work that He started. But He doesn't leave it here at verse 1. He shares these things as a lead-in to the exhortation in verse 2. It's an exhortation followed with instruction. If, then... If God has redeemed us, and he has, in Christ Jesus, then what's our response? Then very easily could be put in brackets at the beginning of verse 2. Then what? He says, fulfill my joy. Or make my joy complete. Remember the theme of our study, full-time joy. This letter is written by Paul, the prisoner, to a church that has been especially helpful to him in his ministry. This church was the joy and crown of his ministry. They were beloved. They were a group of people he longed for with great affection. He prayed for them regularly. If God has done these marvelous works and blessed you in these ways, then fulfill my joy. How? By what means? And here's the main part of the exhortation. See, what follows in verses 3 and 4 connects in a great way to verse 2. Being like-minded. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded or by living in harmony. Or by being on the same side. Having the same love. The love we speak of there is agape love. And one writer was talking about this, and because it's agape love, this love of the will that chooses to love, 
Therefore, it can be commanded. Love this way. This is, this is what he's called us to, having the same love. It's our way that we deal with people, the way that we ought to deal with people. Colossians 3.14 reminds us, but above all things, put on what? Love, which is the bond of perfection. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, or to share together in one spirit. Of one mind. Literally, to to think one thing. To, To think in one purpose. So play the spiritual camcorder, he says. Take a look at all that God's done for you. Marvel at his body of work, a compilation worthy of your attention. Not just to agree with and nod your head and say yes, but to take action on. A response is called for in light of what God has done in your life, church. That's what he's saying. Unity is the response called for from the text. Remember what happened. Remember the change that took place. If these things happen, and they did, if you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, then what's our appropriate response? Unity, says Paul. Unity. And yet how many churches, hope in Christ is not exempt from this or excluded from this either. How many churches have forsaken the exhortation here in the text toward unity? Unity sounds on the surface so simple, doesn't it? Sounds real simple. And yet it shows itself to be really hard to live out. Why is that? Short answer, sin. That's the short answer. Living in harmony, this idea of being on the same side. When conflict arises in the church, unity is threatened. Conflicts in themselves are not sinful, but they do take, I think you would agree with this, they do take great care and effort to handle them well. For conflict to be resolved... A commitment to unity must be in place. And as we'll see in the next verse, that unity happens in the context of humility, lowliness of mind. Unity is fractured when one or both parties takes his eyes off the goal. What is the unity that we gather around? Well, just taking from where we've been already in chapter 1, I'll pose some questions that I think help us arrive at our gathering point for unity. Are we participants in the gospel? Are we endeavoring to advance the gospel? Are we defenders of the gospel? Are we confirming the gospel together as one body? Are we standing together for the faith of the gospel? Our unity is in the gospel. The good news 
embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. We are called to be united in Jesus Christ. I was listening to that song this morning. We are united in Jesus Christ. We are the soldiers of the light. We don't wrestle flesh and blood, but principalities of the dark. We do our marching to one beat, stamping the enemies under our feet. We are mighty in our stand with God's word in our hand. We are united in Jesus Christ. So the exhortation in verse 1, in light of running that spiritual camcorder, washing yourself in the redeeming work of God, the exhortation then is to unity. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, being on the same team. Ken Hughes says that Paul's joy here would be complete if the church lived out their unity in the gospel. That's all the happiness Paul sought. Think about that. You'll fulfill my joy if you all just get along and, and you go toward and strive toward the same goal, the same prize. Paul knew that a people so unified in purpose would not be concerned. Listen, a people so unified in purpose, he says, would not be so concerned with who gets the extra biscuit at the church dinner. (laughs) He knew that to be gospel-oriented is to be others-oriented. See, being like-minded isn't only for a time either. Here's another insight into the text. When in verse 2 it says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. The rendering of the text implies that this is something that, that the church practices ongoing habitual action is called for here. Okay? Being like-minded, it's not a one-time deal. Unity is to be habit-forming within the church of Jesus Christ. Charles Duhigg has written a book. It's called Habits. I'm not advocating that you read the whole book. I, I read the, uh, the, the intro. I was, I was curious. And so I, I'd gone through the, the introduction. And he defines what he means by the word habit. He said, habits are choices that all of us deliberately make at some point and then stop thinking about but continue doing, often every day. He says, a habit takes shape when we stop making choices and the behavior becomes automatic. We stop making choices, but the behavior becomes automatic. And you and I both know we can develop good habits. We can also develop bad habits, right? The nature of being like-minded is to be habit-forming. For the church, unity is to be ingrained in us. And yet the reality is that unity is oftentimes fractured. Instead of unity, the church encounters disunity, this fragmentation. And we've forgotten and profaned God through disunity. And this can happen through a neglect of verse 1, not remembering all that God's done for us in our lives. But disunity can present itself also when verse 3 is neglected too. Not remembering that humility is needed to maintain and exercise unity. It's that two-ditch principle, right? You can fall off on one end and you fall off on the other end. We don't want to fall off on either one of the ends. 
Neither one is good or helpful if we're going to be about advancing the kingdom of God. Well, verse 2 in the text, simply put, is, is a call here to get on the same page. It's just a practical here. Get on, get on the, it's a call to get on the same page. If we were to look at these four results here in verse 2, we, we might word them this way. Uh, Same-mindedness. Mind yourself that you're on the same team. <laughs> same-mindedness, same love, same spirit. Right? That's the one accord. Same one thing. You're working together toward advancing the cause of Christ, upholding his word of truth, witnessing to others about this wonderful name of Jesus. Get on the same page. As part of, of the assignment for, for class this week, uh, Avery and I, we went to uh, uh, the Marian Philharmonic Orchestra on Friday evening. And the stage was filled with violins and clarinets and flutes and horns and cellos and percussion. And there's this conductor who stands right in the middle. And he's directing them. And I, and I thought, and I was wondering, as I was, I was taking this all in, also just thinking about the word I'd been studying this week. And I wondered to myself how things might turn out differently if each of the musicians wanted to be heard. What if, instead of watching the conductor, the violins started the piece of music that began on page three? Because, you know, page three is where that solo instrumental piece for the violins begins. And, and so the violinists all turn to page three because they want to play their part now. So they turn to page three. What if the flutes just blew their melody apart from the conductor's lead? Imagine all the musicians, they have the same music on their stands in front of them. But the violins, they only want to play ver uh, page three. That's the only page they want to play. The, the harp players, they want to play throughout the whole piece. The sheet music only has them inserted to play a couple times. But they're adamant to play their harps. After all, they conclude the harp is such a heavenly sound to it. Who doesn't want to hear what I have to play? And then there's the percussion guy standing in the back. And he's enamored with the variety of percussion tools before him laid out on the table. And he just wants to play them. Any of them. Whenever he wants to. He just feels the need to play them all. So he carries on without any view to the conductor or the sheet music before him. Hypothetical scenarios, yes. But imagine the train wreck that would occur musically. The beauty of the orchestra, when they're led and trained well, disciplined, is that they are all progressing toward a common objective. They are fixed and focused on the sheet music before them. Do we see any parallels here? We have sheet music.
They're all watching the lead of the guy with the stick in his hand. And what's the result of that orchestra? They produce beautiful music. They're able to recognize how their instrument harmonizes with the other instruments. They're aware of one another. They're sensitive to the sounds around them. They're watching for their cues from the conductor. I got a kick. We sat four rows from the front. And I, I just I enjoyed watching the conductor. You know, you know how they are. I mean, they're doing all this with their hands. But when there's a part that's coming up where, you know, the, somebody's supposed to jump in here. He's, he's got that, you know, he, he's looking at them. And it, he doesn't have to say a word. All he does is raise his eyebrow. Or he gives them one of those. Or he does, he's pointing. And, and boom, there it is. They know. They're on the same page. There's little unity, little harmony when you operate on different pages. A question was asked one time of a conductor of a symphony orchestra, not this one from Friday, but another one. There was a question asked of him, what is the most difficult instrument to play? Here's what his response was. I love it. Second violin. He says, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin, listen, with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And he says, if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Absolutely on point. When the church of Jesus Christ has no second violin players, who play with all of their might for the Lord's sake. That too is a problem. Where there is no second violin in Christ's church family, the church has no harmony, there's no unity. And the Bible, you see, describes the church as this one body with many parts, right? This body is deemed to be the body of Christ. Therefore, the body is to operate under the authority of her head. That is Christ. Harmony and unity work together when the diversity of the parts are operating as one body for the one purpose of giving glory and praise to God, advancing the gospel, exalting the name of Jesus. There's to be unity in the community of Christ. Harmony and not dissonance. You know what dissonance is, don't you? You know, I'm not skilled at all on the piano. But if we were to have a chord played. In fact, can you come up here for just a moment, David? David has no idea I'm having him do this. Just give me a, a chord that sounds good to the ear. I don't care what it is. Just something that sounds... Very good. Now, give me an example of something that would be dissonant to our ears. Play those two again. Okay? Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. Do you see the difference? One is pleasing. The other one is like, oh. 
You know, it's sort of like, a, you know, one of those old uh, reruns. You probably have seen it. The, the Barney Five when he tries to sing. You remember that one? He's like, yeah. You know, you're, you're just, you're listening to it and it's just not quite there. And, and besides the fact it's way too loud. Right? So we, 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 get, we get that example of, of dissonance. The body of Christ, there's to be harmony. There's not to be this conflict tension. Sinclair Ferguson writes about the impact of our unity to those around us. Love this. He says two things. He says, first of all, he gives two reasons for this. One, he says, the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. How can non-Christians be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God if we are not reconciled to each other? Now, that ought to cause every single one of us right now to go and be reconciled with a brother or sister that we need to reconcile with right now. Don't let it linger. Take care of it for Christ's sake. Second reason, he says, disunity always has the effect of turning a Christian fellowship in on itself. Listen, wasting energy on itself. When we devour ourselves in that way, we have very little energy left to be shining light and preserving salt in a needy world. We waste our energies and dishonor the Lord when we battle flesh and blood over matters of preference in this life. Matters of preference. Read Romans 14 and 15. That'll give you some idea of what I'm speaking to with matters of preference. Remember what happened. Play the spiritual camcorder. Let it roll. Marvel at what God's done. Get on the same page. Same mindedness about the gospel. Same love that's called for. Same spirit we go about the work. Same purpose our lives are about. Well, the text concludes by addressing the demeanor or attitude by which the child of God operates. If unity is going to be habitual in practice for the church, then it must begin on the inside. Listen, the habitual presence of unity within the community is predicated on the habitual presence of humility within that community. The habitual presence, that's the idea, this is called for ongoing, habit-forming unity. The habitual presence of unity within the community is predicated on the habitual presence of humility within that community. This seems to be what the text is teaching us. God's redeeming work in us ought to compel us toward unity in the community by way of humility. Right? That's what we're talking about here, by way of humility. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. There it is. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Unity is at stake when the church operates out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, selfish ambition is a word that's already been used in the passage in chapter 1, verse 17. This came out of those preaching Christ's name, but they were looking to add affliction to Paul's chains. 
They were thinking about how they might leverage themselves up ahead of Paul. How to push themselves up and how to push Paul down. Selfish ambition has no conception of service, but only aimed at profit and power. Self, for the self. Selfish ambition. Conceit is a closely related word. Uh, Some translations have vain glory or empty praise. It refers to the person who's ambitious for his own reputation. Challenging others to rivalry. Jealous himself and he's willing to fight to prove that he's right. That's going to solve a lot. In fact, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, in that passage of the flesh and the spirit, at the end of that passage in Galatians 5, 26, it says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Paul said, don't operate this way, church. Unity cannot exist when egos are inflated. Inflated egos crowd out the one thing we're supposed to be striving for together. You see, we can't see one another. We can't see Christ. We can't see his kingdom agenda when the inflated self gets in the way. So instead of selfish ambition and conceit, the scripture here says that we're to be practicing lowliness of mind. Practice humility. This is the intended path to unity in the community. Sustained unity only happens where there's a willingness, here's our third point, where there's a willingness to go low. Go low. Once we replay the spiritual camcorder, remember what happened to us, then we're called to get on the same page together, this ongoing unity, but this only happens as we exercise lowliness of mind. It only happens as we exercise going low. Literally, this has mind lowly thinking. The word indicates a recognition of one's insufficiency, but the powerful sufficiency of God. We get this in Acts 20, verse 19, where Paul is, is with the Ephesian elders there at Miletus. And he says, you know, brothers, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. We see Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low. Not low in the sense we're talking about, but in the wrong way. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Proverbs 11, verse 2 says, when pride comes, then comes shame. And with the humble... Is wisdom. Raymond Harris, in his book, he says, Humility is knowing who God is, knowing who I am. It's knowing our awesome God on a personal, intimate level while maintaining full awareness of our complete dependence on Him as recipients of His unmerited favor. The Bible teaches that humility is something the child of God is clothed with, right? 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 and 6, this is a wonderful passage as we talk about humility. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. 
For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Colossians 1 verse 12 says, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, and here's the word, humility. See, it's in this spirit, this being clothed with, put on. It's in the spirit that each one of us is to esteem others better than or more important than himself. The writer points out for us that to esteem means more than just having an opinion. It refers to a carefully thought out conclusion based upon truth. It doesn't mean, let's be clear, when we look at the text and we see this, verse 3, esteem others better than himself. It does not mean to pretend that others are more important, but actually to believe they are more important. And you might ask yourself, well, how is that possible? How do I do that? It's a great question. Begins by taking inventory of your own sin on a regular basis. It's how Paul could arrive at saying the following, and there is a progression, I believe, to these three statements. In Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of all the apostles. You know, we read that oftentimes, and we go, Come on. Paul? You know, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, he says. Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now he's not even talking about the apostles. He's talking about all the saints. He's less than the least of all the saints. You've got to be kidding me. Paul? This grace was given me, he says. And then 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am what? Chief. Chief. The text here in Philippians is advocating we operate from a spirit of humility and not pride. Pride closes the door of God's grace. In the community of God's people, Scripture tells us that sin in the camp is sufficient to stop the flow of God's grace. You remember that Old Testament story? I think it brings us out in a wonderful way. Remember Achan stealing? Right? God said, hey, don't take any of the plunder. What's Achan do? He takes it. And he hides it. And he's discovered. And, and because there's sin in the camp that hasn't been dealt with, you remember what happens to Israel? They get defeated, don't they? Who do they get defeated by? This is a part of the wonderful part of the story. They get defeated by AI. And we oftentimes refer to them as lowly AI. This is, a, this is a nation they weren't supposed to have any problems with. They didn't have all that many people. But they lose. They're brought low. Why? Because they didn't deal with sin. They needed to be dealt with. It's important in the body of Christ. Unity in the body is significant. And don't think for a moment that there's any one of us here who get a free pass on this one in terms of dealing with our sin. If you're in Christ, you two are called to unity in this community. And this gets exercised through a spirit of humility. Covetous desires, selfish ambition, conceit, no one in the body gets a pass on what the text is advocating here. Notice the spirit of humility has a social aspect 
to it. It has a social aspect to it. In other words, it's, it's not solely what you think on the inside that counts. Humility is expressed, and verses 3 and 4 bring this forward. Humility is expressed outwardly within the context of body life toward one another. With humility, each one is to esteem others more important than himself. Now this enables verse 4 to happen. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. When you esteem others more important, greater than yourself, you will find it easier to look out for their things. That's the literal translation, for their things, for their interests. See, humility changes how you value other people. What value do you place on others in the body of Christ? Ferguson says that to display humility is to replace the value system of this world with the values of heaven. He says we have the strongest possible motive for valuing others. Listen, he says, Christ counted our salvation more important than preserving his own life. In Christ, we are to become like him. I want to make sure here for just a moment that you understand what humility is not. It's not thinking of yourself less in terms of I'm, I'm not very important. I'm not very significant in God's eyes. I'm, I, need to, I need to make sure that I'm walking around in a state of uh, I'm, not, I'm just not worth, worthy of anything, period. It's, it's this whole, uh, if we look at the text, humility doesn't mean you turn into a doormat. Okay? That you let people treat you however they want. It's not a slave-like mentality toward others' wishes and wants at their whims. Humility is lowliness of mind that acknowledges the gap between the creature and the creator. Your insufficiency and his all-sufficiency. That understanding then translates into our relationships with others... We view them differently and we value them differently. I think that's the difference between three and four of the text. We view them differently. We esteem them better than ourselves. We view them differently and we value them differently. We're actually looking out for their interests. We esteem them better. In real fact, they are better. They are more able than we are in some areas. Case in point, I didn't go over to the piano earlier because I couldn't, have, I couldn't have given you what sounded good. I could have given you a whole lot of dissonance. That's all I would have been able to give you and provide for you. But I knew someone like David, and there are others in here who also play, can go and do that. They, don't have, they, don't even, they can just be called out of their chair to go do that in, in a spur of the moment because they're able to. They're good at it. And I think part of this is understanding that God has placed parts in the body and has given the parts various gifts. Some are able to do things better than you do. And it's important that each one of us acknowledge that and celebrate that. You know, there are some of us in here perhaps that, that like to be able to do everything. And 
we, we see what someone else does well, and by golly, we want to trump that. We want to do it better instead of celebrating the gifts God's given and rejoicing in the gifts that God's given to all the brothers and sisters. Humility. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also. Listen, humility isn't dropping everything on my list to take care of somebody's wish list. It's not attempting to carry someone else's load for them all the time. That might be called enabling, by the way. The text is advocating that you look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Ken Hughes says that looking to the interests of others is at the heart of all godly parenting, right? This is what our godly mothers and fathers do, and we parents are called to live it out every day. Listen to this. He says, no one can effectively parent who is into himself or herself. It doesn't take us long to figure this out. When dads and moms are all about themselves, we can't be effective parents. This this spirit of humility is at the heart of our parenting. Go low. The kingdom of heaven is reserved for those who are poor in spirit. That's how it begins. Go low. You know, the business world is known for its get-all-you-can, however-you-can mentality. Survival of the fittest in some instances. And yet the research shows that the most successful companies, the most productive businesses, the ones who surpass all the others, there's a pattern that's found in each one of these companies. They have people in place who exhibit this virtue of humility. And the business world seems to just marvel and scratch their head at how... how how, that, how that's so. It's biblical in concept, but it's far-reaching in terms of its impact. I would venture that some of your favorite people here today, you have some favorite people that you're thinking of, some people you like to be around. And those are the people who take a genuine interest in you. We like to be around those kinds of people, don't we? The ones who are actually looking at you when they're speaking to you. The ones who are listening to what you have to say and aren't already thinking about what they're going to say. People who value you as a person. In his book, Humilitas, John Dixon says this about humility. In fact, this is uh, one of my many sticky notes in my Bible. This This is good. He defines humility. It's the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. He says the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Oh, that's good. A willingness to hold power in service of others. Others. 
Remember what happened. Roll the spiritual camcorder of God's goodness in your life. Get on the same page, same mindedness, same love, same spirit, same one purpose. And go low. When Jesus calls us unto himself, he invites us to participate in humility with him. He invites and says, come to me. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Look with me as we conclude at verse 2. The beginning of verse 2, the beginning of that main clause, fulfill my joy. I want to leave you with this. When we operate in humility, we, when we live in the harmony that's called for with one another, when we go low and view others as Christ would have us view them and we value others as Christ would have us value them, we fulfill the joy of Christ our Lord. The joy that completed Paul in verse 2, as he's writing to this church at Philippi, the joy that completed Paul was rooted in a joy characterized by Christ himself. And I put these verses up here because I, I don't know that we can leave this passage without touching on this. This is really important for us to grasp. In John chapter 17, it's a prayer, Jesus' prayer to the Father before going to the cross. I want to make sure you capture the motivation for living the way the text is calling us to live. In chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, my followers, and I come to you. Holy Father, he prays, keep through your name those whom you've given me, that they may be one. That they may be one as we are. Think about the oneness of Jesus and his Father. He's praying that we, the followers, would be one as Jesus, the Son, and God the Father were one. Skip down to verse 21. That they may be one. There's that phrase again. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also be one in us. So that the oneness that that the followers are to have is a oneness that is in Christ. Verse 22, the glory which you gave me I gave them that they may be one just as we are one. And verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Jesus prayed four specific times for the unity of his followers, church. Right before he goes to the cross. This was, can we say, heavily on his mind the night before the cross. Know that preserving the unity of Christ in the context of his church... Know that when you make a habit to operate this way, you are fulfilling Christ's joy. 
You are answering the very prayer he prayed to his father before the cross. Before he tangibly looked out for your interests and mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For viewing us in such a way. That you saw fit in your redemptive plan to send your son down here to earth. To take on the form of flesh. And where for some period of time he lived and then he died. He went to that cross and Lord in that upper room. When, and John's gospel gives us a, a window into that period, those hours before the cross. And Lord, what a, an, an amazing thing to read and to just soak in. That the unity of your followers is something that Christ was so urgently praying to you about. That he wanted those who would follow after him to be one. They would be on the same page together. That they would, have rem- they would be a people who remember what had been done and accomplished for them. And, and Jesus himself was just hours away from completing that work at the cross. And three days after being raised from the dead. Thank you, Father for the good news and the truth that we have of your word, that this call, this exhortation, which moves us to unity together as a body and to do it by means of a spirit of humility. Lord, this motivation that we have in the text because of all that you've done and worked out in our lives and are still working in our lives. Lord, I pray that unity... We would we'd gather around this unity of the gospel, this unity that's found in the person. It's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe we end in a fitting place here this morning. Reminded of what your son prayed for on behalf of those who would come after him and follow him. And Lord, where there is not unity in this place, The response that the Bible calls for is one all of us can share in together. It's one of repentance. It's one of coming before you, acknowledging our sin, turning to you in faith, trusting that when we confess our sins to you, you are a faithful and just God, and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that this unity we're speaking of this morning would draw us and remind us once again of your goodness, would help us to remember we're on the same page here. We're on the same, we're, we're, we're working together on the same team, side by side. That there is an enemy, and our brother and sister is not that enemy. It would remind us always to go low, to have a spirit of humility by which we operate, that others might see Christ in us. 
Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. And thank you for your people here at Hope in Christ. If these things are true, and I believe they are, then I pray that our response would be to take action in light of these truths. May we do it together. In Christ's name, amen.